Well, good morning. This service seems a tick more chipper than first service, but uh, I think there's, there's just a little bit of, I don't know, a bug going around. Of everybody, who, who wants a nap later today? Yeah? Me too. Me too. Well, I won't, uh, hopefully, don't take one now. Wait, wait till you go home, okay? And I'll do my best to keep you awake. If you remember um, from last week and the week before, we, we've been in the book of Romans now since we've started here in the fall. Favorite Bible teachers, J.D. Greer, and that was twofold. One, I've been accused of talking really fast, and J.D. Greer talks faster than me, so I just wanted you to experience that for a second. And also, also, two weeks ago, I preached on Romans 5, 1 through, I think it's 11 or 12, and we talked about how to have joy in the midst of suffering. And the message that, that I shared uh, seemed to really strike a chord. And I thought, you know, if, if I can't be here and we need to do something, maybe we could sit in Romans 5, 1 through 11 and, and hear it from a different perspective. And that's what you got to, to listen to last week. So I, I hope that you've kind of got that down and you're understanding that it is possible to have joy in the midst of suffering. Two weeks ago, I talked about how we go about cooperating with the Holy Spirit to do that. And really, Paul says rejoice but I define that as practicing appreci- appreciation. Now, we're in a season of Thanksgiving, which Wes said, thankfully, our, our country and our culture has, has set aside a whole month to really focus our hearts on gratitude and be thankful. And if you remember from two weeks ago, I said that as we acknowledge and receive God's good gifts, as we practice appreciation, that really has the ability to move us from the valley of the shadow of death, where we sit in kind of that seat of thorns, where the pain of life and the traumas and wounds that we experience, all of that pain can get us sitting in that valley way down low. And the way that we get up out of that chair, that thorny chair of pain, is to remember God's goodness and graciousness to us and the good gifts that he's given to us. And we can gradually move up that mountain into his presence, where we can experience joy and intimacy and connection with our Father. So the, the point is to get up that mountainside, and we do that, We enter into his presence, according to Psalm 100, verse 4, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Again, from two weeks ago, we learned that you could paraphrase that that, uh, verse by, by saying, in a very real sense, we enter into God's presence by practicing appreciation. By being thankful, we can actually rewire our brain. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind with the truth of Scripture. And so as we practice appreciation, we can enter into God's presence and have a joy that no amount of suffering can steal from us. To this end, since I've been learning and studying some of this stuff, I've actually set a reminder on my phone three times a day, in the morning, around lunchtime, later in the evening, and it just says practice appreciation. Three times a day. Sometimes I hit done and I don't actually do it, but a lot of times I actually hit pause in my day. I developed a list of memories that I can go to, memories that I have that give my heart joy. So some of them are vacations. There was a football, a fantasy football draft that I was a part of this fall that was just really fun with some some guys from church and their wives. And so when it says practice appreciation, I will think on one of those memories and then I will thank God for it in an attempt to go up that mountainside, get out of the pain seat, get into the interactive seat where I can experience God's presence. So that was two weeks ago. Um, A little bit of a summary. If you missed it, you can check it out online. It'll be there for you. Um, This morning, we're moving on from Romans 5, 1 through 11. We'll be in Romans 12 through 21. Last two weeks ago, I titled the message, How to Find Joy. 
This week, the title of the message is How to Find Hope in Life. How to Find Hope in Life. You want to know where it is? Well, we had an election here two weeks ago, right? You said, oh no, we're going there. We are. We are going here. In a room this size, for some, the results of this election filled you with hope. For others, the results of this election, which we're still counting, you would think after like 100 years of doing this, we would be able to be a little bit more efficient. Anyways, for the most part, the results are in. For some, that's filled you with hope. For others, that's filled you with dread. Now, I'm not going to do a show of hands to say which one was hopeful, which one was dread, because here's what you all do, right? You look, it's like, oh, that person dreaded, this person hope. They're an elephant. They're a donkey. I'm not sitting next to them next week, right? No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And obviously, if you've been here, hopefully you know that we don't find hope in our politics. And before I move on, I just want to belabor this a little bit. This church is not and will never be a church of Democrats or a church of Republicans or a church of you fill in the political party. This church, as long as I am in leadership and your elders are in leadership and the staff as long this church will be a church of Jesus Christ first and foremost my hope and prayer is that this church will continue to be filled with believers who love and follow Jesus and the Bible more than a political party or political ideologies okay I know that as much as we might all agree that politics is not where we find our hope I know most of us would agree with that. I think for a lot of us, the reality is that we do find a lot of hope in politics. I'm not saying that politics and government isn't important. God established our authorities to restrain evil. It is important. I'm not saying that politics and government isn't helpful. But church, if we want to find hope, then we can't look to our government and we can't look to the political world to find it. And politics and government isn't the only place that the world would tell us to look to find hope. That's probably a really big one. If you say, hey, where am I supposed to find hope? Well, elect this guy. Elect this gal. Change this law. There's hope in government. That's not the only place. If we ask cultures, like, where do we find hope? They might say education. It's about what we know. They might say it's about economics. There's kind of this new age spiritism, spiritual thing going on. It's like, man, just... Find, find the universe and connect with that. That's where we find hope. Here's what this looks like. For those that would say, Here, here's where hope is found in politics and government. They'll say, if we could just elect the right leaders, if we could just get the right laws on the books, then our world would be healed. Our problems would be solved. This is what every political candidate runs on. Hope. Looking, listen, I'm going to put this law in place. I'm going to get these people. I'm going to do this policy. I'm going to spend this money. And I'm going to fix the world. I'm your hope. Others might say, if we could just get the right economic structures in place, if we could just get everyone a job and everyone on a livable wage, boy, then all the problems in our world would be solved. That's where your hope is. Let me get you a job. Let me get you a livable wage. Others would say, no, no, that's not it. Hope's not found there. Hope's found in education. If we could get everybody through school, if we could just give free college to everybody, get everybody college educated, boy, then our world would be healed. And lastly, there's that new age hippie among us who would say, well, all that is kind of just malarkey. If we could just get people to connect with the universe, right? If we could just get enough, enough of the random spiritual practices together, maybe do some yoga, practice some of those new meditation and mindfulness techniques, we maybe buy some crystals and just, man, get centered with your chi, then, 
That's what they say. Then our problems will be healed. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time here at Crossroads, hopefully you know that none of these areas offer real or lasting hope to what ails our world. So my question this morning for you all is, how do we find hope in life? Where is it to be found? Enter Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. It tells us not only how to find hope in life, but also hope in death. To find lasting hope in life and death, we need three points. We need to first identify our real problem. Lots of confusion about what, what the problem is with our world. We've got to identify our real problem. Two, we need to understand reality as it is. Not some fantasy, not what we think, not what we feel. Reality as it is. And thirdly, we need to live in Jesus, not in Adam. We need to live under the headship of a new corporate representative. We'll unpack all of these together. But first, Romans 5, starting in verse 12 through 21. Paul writes this. He says, I'll be reading from the NLT. It's up on the screen. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death, so that death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as a sin, or as sin, because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. Now, yet to come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of the one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam caused death to rule over many, but... Even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in our eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, again, if you remember from two weeks back, we talked a lot about the results of our justification. Justification is a big fancy Bible word, but it simply means that when God looks at you, if you're a believer, he puts on his Jesus sunglasses and he sees you, what? Just as if you never sinned. You're justified. And living out of that justification, remembering and receiving all of those good things, appreciating those things, rejoicing in those things, enables us to live with joy no matter what. That was two weeks ago. Understanding what our justification works out. 
This morning, we're going to look at why we need to be justified in the first place. What's all of this deal about being justified and getting justification from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? As I was writing the sermon this past week, it might have been because I was sick a little bit, but I kept thinking about this, this Black Eyed Peas song that was running through my head, right? Anybody remember the Black Eyed Peas? You know the song, Where's the Love? What's wrong with the world, mama? People living like ain't got no promise. Yeah? Right? I'm not a rapper, as you can see. Right? But I kept thinking of that song. What's wrong with the world, mama? People living like ain't got no mamas. I think the whole world's addicted to drama. Only attracted to the things that'll bring trauma. What's wrong with our world? Where's the love? Where's the hope? That's a great question. As we've discussed already, people have lots of answers on where we can find hope and love in this world. But to find true hope, lasting hope, we need to first identify our real problem. Is it with our politics and our economics? Is it those crazy communists and socialists, those, those greedy capitalists? Is it our lack of education? Or is it something else? Paul tells us, in verse 12 through 14, he tells us what our chief problem is. It's sin. It's sin. Sin that comes to all of us through Adam. In verse 12, Paul says that the problem with our world, mama, is that Adam sinned. And he brought sin into our world, and his sin brought death to all of humanity, and it spread to everyone and everything. And then Paul talks about how sin has always been humanity's problem. He says even before the law, people sinned and they were held guilty for that sin. But they didn't know it because they didn't have the law yet. So they didn't have the rules yet, but they were still guilty because God put a conscience in their heart and wrote the law that he's given to us more explicitly in the, in the gospel and in the Bible. They didn't have that yet, but they were still held accountable. Paul says they still died. Sin, sin was still prevalent in this world. In the courtroom of heaven, God maybe would have judged a little bit less stringently because they didn't have the law. They didn't know any better. But he says, now for those of us who do, for those of us who do have the law, who understand the scriptures, who know what God says, he says, you will be judged at a higher standard. Now listen, Paul's not contradicting himself here. He's not saying, well, if you don't have the law, then there's no judgment. And if you have the law, there's a greater judgment. What he's saying here is you might be held to a little le less guilty if you don't have the law, right? If you're in, in some country, you've never heard the gospel, you, like you might, might be held to a little lower standard than the people that have the Bible and have the gospel. They might be held to a high, higher standard, but in the courtroom of heaven, a little bit of guilty and a lot of bit of guilty is guilty, period. So that's like, he's kind of, it's a little confusing right here, but that's what's going on. And I just want to make, make this point before I move on. This should concern us. Verses 13 and 14. If you're here this morning, you have the law. Because you listen to it regularly. You have a Bible. You hear the gospel regularly. We preach the Bible here. You, you have the law. That means you're going to be held to a higher standard. Now, the solution is the same for both people. It's get into Jesus. I'm not saying that, that it's something different for us, but I, I just want you to know, James 1.22, we're memorizing this passage in my Every Man a Warrior. Jim, I won't make you quote it for everyone. You're welcome. He's, he's got it, though. 
James 1.22 says, Do not merely hear the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Folks, I love preaching the Bible. I love sharing God's word. But I don't do it so that I can just hear myself talk. I do it so that we can better understand it and live it out. Understanding that those of us who have the law and hear the gospel, listen, I want, when you come here and you listen, God's word is living and active. It is sharper than in a double-edged sword. It is doing something. And here's what it's doing. If you're coming here with a heart to grow in your relationship to God and get closer to Jesus, you learn the word and you desire to apply it in your life. And it is softening your heart and enabling you to do that more effectively. Not perfectly, but there will be progress. If you come here Sunday after Sunday and never attempt to live out what we preach, it's not neutral. Your heart is being hardened towards God. And eventually, if you persist in unrepentance in sin, here's what's going to happen. You're going to move further and further away from God and find yourself on what Romans 1 and 2 calls the downward spiral of sin. And you do not want to go where that spiral ends. And so here's what I'm saying. Can we just commit as a family to hold each other accountable, to seek to live out and apply what we hear and what we read together? If we see a brother and sister throw something on Facebook that looks a little bit like their heart might need to be checked, if you love them and you go to church with them, please move towards them in love and invite them to reconsider how they're living, what they're saying, to check their heart. And not in like the cliche way, but the actual way. Like, check your heart. Are you, are you trying to apply what God is saying or not? Because we want our hearts soft for the Lord and malleable. We want him to be able to do whatever he wants to. We don't want to be left to our own devices to do whatever our hearts, who are sinful and broken, want to do what they want to do. Got it? All right, that's my spiel about that. Now, <laughs> I'll move on. Uh, let's see here. Where am I at? Back to my main point. Romans 5, 12 through 14 tells us what our main problem is. It's sin. It's sin. Because we're descendants of Adam and he is our corporate representative, his action is credited as our action. His sin is our sin, and therefore all of us stand guilty before God. Each and every one of us misses the mark. This is our world's problem. It's not our political structures, our economics, our education. It's the sin that reigns supreme in the hearts of every man, woman, and child. That's our main problem. And if we want to find hope in life that faces down death, then we need to at first accept that sin is the biggest problem that you and I and our world faces. Which brings me to my next point. If we're going to find hope that faces down death, we also we need to identify our problem, but we also learn to live, need to live in reality. In reality. Here's what I mean by that. As Westerners... We like to think of ourselves as individuals. We're individuals, meaning my choices don't affect the community. I'm just alone on an island. I do what I want when I want. I'm an individualist. It's just me. This is not how God views us as humanity. We tend to see each person as an island unto himself. You've heard that phrase, you do you. That is a popular phrase that reinforces that idea, that everyone's just an island, we're all maybe kind of interconnected, but we rise and fall based on our personal choices, and 
God doesn't see us as a group. The problem with that is it's not reality. It's not true. This is not how God sees or treats humanity. And this is really important. This is good news. God sees and treats humanity as a corporate entity, like a pro sports team with a general manager, like a country with a president, like a union with a representative, or like a family with a dad. God made humanity, and then he made Adam the corporate representative for humanity. Here's why this is important. We're going to talk about original sin right now. You're not, you're not just you. You stand guilty before God because you're a part of the human race, and God made Adam the union representative, the general sports manager of the human race, which means his decisions are your decisions, for better or for worse. In the same way that my Green Bay Packers just stink this year because Brian Gutekunst has made some horrible decisions as a, as a general manager, right? In the same way that you can say, well, not my president, whether it's Trump or Biden or you name it, not my president. It's like, you lived in America? No, no, the guy in office is your president. His decisions affect you because you exist as a citizen here and he's our leader. In the same way a union representative goes into the office, he or she has the right to sign contracts and make agreements that affect all of us. In the same way that a dad has the ability to set the tone, not just for his generation, but for many generations to come based on how he leads his family or not. And see, we don't love this idea that we, we're in a, a corporate body, but this is how God treats us. And when it comes to sin, Adam... His choices were our choices because he was our representative. We also don't like to believe that our, our decisions affect anyone else. The reality is that we are more interconnected in God's sight than we care to admit. To admit. The decisions that you and I make personally affect our community, Napoleon, Henry County, and it affects our church as well. Again, if you're a father in here this morning, God has given you headship over your home and your decisions have huge consequences to the positive or the negative, to affect your family for generations. This is the reality. It's why God can count all of us as being guilty, even though some of us aren't as evil or as wicked as we could be. Not everybody in here is a serial killer. And yet we still stand guilty before God because we're in Adam, and our guilt is passed through his bloodline. In a very real sense, we inherit sin nature from our first father. Again, while we might not all be as sinful as we could be, we all stand guilty before God because Adam failed and with him we failed. Now, this interconnectedness, this corporate nature that God sees us, he says this is true of the church as well. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that the church is like a body. It's like a body. It's, it exists of many different parts. All the parts are important. All the parts need to be functioning or the body isn't as healthy as it should be. Do you think about that when you're trying to decide on a Sunday morning whether you need to hit, hit up Bedside Baptist and listen to Pastor Sheets or whether you should come here this morning? Do you think about the reality that your presence here is vital to the health of our congregation? That God has given you a job and a role to do and that if you don't live up and into that job, the health of our entire body suffers. I'm not saying this to spank this church this morning. I'm actually really pleased with the way you all serve and your generosity, but I can't mention 
the reality of how God sees us as a corporate entity and not stress how important this is for the church. God has given you gifts. He's wired you in specific ways. And we need you to be a healthy church body. Every one of you are important. Not just the mouth that stands up here and babbles all the time, right? We need hands of that stuff. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. The reality is we are more interconnected as a family of faith than sometimes I think we care to admit. God made us to live in a community, to live as a tribe with leaders and representatives more than he made us to live separated from one another, alone in isolation and individualism. He tells us one man, sin, Adam, is the reason the why, why the world is in chaos. Because one man failed to lead his family. Think about that for a second. Because Adam failed to lead his family in the garden. He was right there when Eve was getting tempted, and he said nothing. Because one man failed to lead his family, you and I die. People get cancer. Rape and murder exist. This world is in chaos because one man failed to lead his family and represent humanity well. He chose to make a deal with the devil as our union representative rather than trust and obey the owner of the company, Father God. So to summarize, here's what you need to understand about original sin. This is what we've been talking about. The fact that we have a heart problem, a heart problem that's been passed down to us from Adam. Talking about original sin. Original sin is first imputed. It means it's credited or given to us in Adam. Because he was our representative, like it or not, we all got what he got. This means sin is a global issue. You can't go to some country, everybody likes to talk about Denmark and how much they got their stuff together in Sweden. You can't go to any country in the world where sin has not infected their system of government and their people. You cannot find a race that is good. Right? The KKK and all that, Nazis and all that. No, there is no Aryan race. There is no good race. We all are infected with a problem, and it's called sin. We're all corrupt. In capitalism, people exploit people, and in communism, the reverse is true. People exploit people because original sin is imputed. It's transferred. It's given to every single person on the earth through Adam. Original sin is imputed. It's also inherited and imparted into our natures at conception. Here's what this means. We are all born this way, and that is no excuse. You name it. This is my personality. I was born this way. This is just my struggle. This is whatever. No, that's not an excuse. We are all born this way in Adam, and it is not excuse. This also means that our problem starts with what we are, before we ever do anything. It's not about our behaviors. Having an inherited and imparted sin nature means that our sin is a spiritual root problem that bears a lot of bad behaviors. But we can't fix our spiritual root problem with any physical thing. It's not a behavior problem. It's not a knowledge problem. There's no medication that can heal our chief problem. There's no surgery. There's no counseling. There's no behavior modification that can ultimately deal with our core issue, our broken hearts, our sinful hearts. Friends, if you want true and lasting freedom and healing, we have to deal with our core issue, the root of having corrupted hearts and corrupted wanters. 
which again means that there is no doctor, there is no psychiatrist, no counselor, no yoga instructor that can help us here. We need the Holy Spirit to give us a heart transplant. Original sin is inherited and it's imparted at conception. Original sin is also included in our individual choices. You say, well, I'm just, I'm just supposed to accept this. It's coming down through Adam. You can get kind of up in arms about that, and I get that, but hold, hold on real fast. True or false? You and I make sinful choices. True. True, right? That counts against us as well. Our, our original sin forces us to make sinful choices, and we are held accountable for those things as well. Here's what this means, church. Original sin. It means that the problem is not with the Democrats or the Republicans. It's not with the socialists or the capitalists. It's not with your neighbor across the street. The problem is not your parents. The problem is not the system that you grew up in. The problem is not them. It's not even Adam and Eve. The problem is you and it's me. It's you and it's me. Here's why this is important, understanding original sin. Original sin helps us live in reality. It helps us understand why things are the way they are. It's very important that we learn to live in reality. Here's why. My youngest son, or yeah, youngest son Graham, used to, when he was growing up, had a really active imagination. I've shared this with you before, but for a while he thought he was an astronaut. And he thought that if he jumped off the top bunk or the couch or the back of the bed, that if he jumped, then he'd float because he was an astronaut. You can see why not living in reality is problematic, right? We all know that there's such a thing as gravity. And if you jump off of a high spot, you ain't going to float. You're going to fall and you're probably going to get hurt. I have not found anything in life that explains our reality for why the things of this world are the way they are like the scriptures. God wants us to know and live in reality. And the scriptures help us understand that. And the reality of original sin passed on through Adam helps us explain why this world is such a mess. It explains why, this, why, why we have so many family problems. It's Thanksgiving. Some of you are praising God that you have a work thing so you don't have to go to your Thanksgiving whatever with your family, right? Why? Because some of your families are a train wreck. And we all have family issues. Why? Because of original sin. Because we have broken wanters. We have broken hearts. Sinful hearts. If you're a parent here this morning, you see the babies, they come out, they're all cute and cuddly. You know what they are? They're sinners. <laughs> they're cute little sinners. That's what they are. Did you ever have to teach a child how to throw a fit? No, they just come that way. Did you have to tell them how to... How to be selfish and tell you no and storm off and throw it. No, they just come that way, right? And try as you might. Behavior modification, punishing bad behavior and good behavior will not fix their issue. That is an in-Adam response. And there is no hope in that. Because the real problem is what? Their hearts. They're sinful. That's why the first and foremost priority for you as a parent is not to control and shape your child's behavior. That is an in-Adam, no-hope response. Do you know what Christ Jesus says? Do you know what Christ Jesus says is the hope for you as a parent? It's to introduce your children to the King. 
who can give them heart surgery and fix the problem that they actually have. Give them a new heart. Stop trying to control your kids' behaviors. Disciple them in Jesus, and he will, make, he will give you hope. He will give you hope if you feel like you have none with your kids. There is hope in Jesus there. Original sin is why everything's broken. It's why our families are a mess. It's why parenting is so hard. It's why, it's why you can tell me some really ex- excellent way to do government, and we can go and we can look at that system of government and I can show you greed and corruption and exploitation in it. I don't care what the form of government is. Name a governmental system and I will show you greed, corruption, and injustice. Church, original sin is why every young person in every generation starts out thinking that they will change the world and why none of us have yet. It's why history hope, which brings me to the hope of this passage. What is the hope? If you continue to live in Adam, hoping in politics, hoping in government, hoping in medication and and counseling and behavior modification and hoping in self-help and hoping in, and you name a man-centered fix, if you continue in Adam, there is no hope because you are under him as your representative and he is a horrible one. The good news of the gospel says that if you so choose by faith, you can elect a different representative for yourself. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And everything that is negative and horrible that comes to us from Adam can be undone and remade new because we come under Jesus. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And as our new corporate head, our new union representative, every decision that he makes and everything good and beautiful and excellent that he does comes to us down through him as our new representative for humanity. That's what Paul says in the the final verses of Romans 5. You can read it for yourself. Essentially, he tells us that Jesus is the new and better Adam for humanity. And you can put yourself under him by faith if you so choose. Where Adam turned from the Father in the garden, our Lord Jesus turned to the Father in the garden of Gethsemane. He's new. He's better. He's a better representative. Where Adam was naked and ashamed because of his sin, Jesus was made nearly naked and chose to bear our same for our sin. He's new and better than Adam. Where Adam's sin brought us thorns, Jesus wore a crown of thorns that brings us joy and peace with God. He's better than Adam. Where Adam substituted himself for God, no God thanks, I think I'll be the king of my life, I'll rule myself how I want to, I don't want you. Where Adam substituted himself for God, Jesus who was God, chose to substitute himself for sinners like you and me. Where Adam sinned at a tree, Jesus bore our sin on a tree. Where Adam died as a sinner, Jesus willingly died for us sinners. And where Adam's death brought a curse that you and I are still living under, death could not hold our Savior and his resurrection brings those of us with faith new life. Simply put, friends, if you want to have hope in this life that will face down death, you need to know and love Jesus. He's the only person who can fix our spiritual problem that's at the root of all every other problem in our world. He's the only person that can help us live in reality. Now, I realize that this has been kind of a theoretical, theological message. It's been a little little deep. We were wading through it, so to speak, this morning. So I want to give you a practical example of what this looks like in everyday life. 
What does it look like to live with no hope in Adam versus to living with new hope, ultimate hope in Jesus? I'm going to give you an example from my life. I'm not going to talk about specifics because if I told you the specifics, that all, that's all you'd remember. So I'll talk, talk vaguely. We're doing a building project, which I'm super pumped about. I'm glad that we're doing it. I think we should do it. I think God's calling us to do it. Over this season, there has been a tendency in my heart to put my hope, not in Jesus, but in Adam and a new building. And that has caused me at times to lose my joy, to get frustrated, and to act out like a two-year-old who doesn't get what they want sometimes. Case in point, recently we've been having to do drawings and do all this stuff and go through the state and our government to get permits. Recently, I was told that we're not allowed to do something that we were originally told we were allowed to do and did some stuff on and, oh, wait, you can't do that. And our general contractor called me up and he said, hey, I have some bad news, here's what's going on. In that moment, the emotions that filled my heart revealed where my hope was. And it wasn't in Jesus, it was in Adam. It was in a worldly solution. And in that moment, I wanted to give that man across the phone the what for and tell him, you're the reason for my problems and this government and that thing and, you know, be real not Christian. Sometimes my sinful self gets the best of me and, and I release that, especially with my kids. When they're not behaving like how I want and my hope is built in, in the peace and quiet that I can have in my house rather than Jesus and when they disturb that, my hope is taken away and then I lose it. And I'm filled with rage and I just pop off. And something other than Jesus comes out. In that moment, thankfully, the Holy Spirit said, Hey, Levi, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't say what you're going to say. You represent Crossroads Church. You represent Jesus. Tone it back. And I felt in my spirit, he asked me this question. If you can't do what you want to do in regards to this building, can you still proclaim Jesus Christ? Yes, I absolutely can. That's my hope. If so-and-so gets elected, can you still proclaim Jesus Christ? Can you still love Jesus Christ? Yes, you can. You still have hope. Stop acting like you don't have it on social media. If we elected Nero, the Roman dictator who murdered Christians on a spike, put them as a lamppost for his dinner party, we still have hope. Because they can't take Jesus from us. They can't stop us from loving Jesus. They can't stop us from telling other people about Jesus. I love that we're building this building. It's sharpening a tool for ministry. If the Lord strikes this thing dead through a hurricane tomorrow, we still have hope. Because our hope is not in Adam and a tool of this world. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. That is how this works practically. So, when you're going through... Thanksgiving, and your so-and-so says something from the party that you despise, and this is what's wrong, and everything in your heart wants to just let them have it. <laughs> Take that as a cue to check your hope. Where is it? If it can be stolen from you and fill you with the attitude of a two-year-old who wants to throw a tantrum and grumble and complain and whine about not getting your way, then it ain't the hope of Jesus, and it can't heal what your heart needs healed. Come to Jesus, friend. He's got hope for you that no one and nothing in this world can ever take from you.
Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us a rock-solid hope that nothing in this world, not communism, not socialism, not capitalism, not libertarianism, not some crazy person in office or whatever, or drugs or alcohol. Lord, there's nothing in this life that can steal our hope in Christ. I pray that you would enable this body to never lose sight of that reality. And Father, when, when our hearts are shaken, when the emotions rise up within us that, want, uh, that, that make us want to throw a tantrum because there was some hope in Adam that's been deferred, would you, by the power of the Spirit, fix our eyes upon Jesus and remind us of what he's done for us? We are no longer in Adam our horrible union representative. We are no longer under him, but we can now live under Jesus, who succeeded in every way that Adam failed, for our good, for your glory, for our joy. Help us live with hope. And Father, as we do, when people ask us of the reason for our hope, would you put words into our mouth, enable us to say, let me tell you about my Jesus. I love you, Father. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.